Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of... Oh, it's uh, beneath the screen of the Ultra Critics. See, what I was going to do, and then I realized I couldn't, was I was going to try and do like a Clancy Brown sort of voice, but then I realized that no one can do that but Clancy Brown, uh, especially yes. not without practicing. So I, I gave up uh, immediately before even that's, trying. That's the good old Missouri try there. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm joined, as always, by Thad. Yeah. And Kara. <laughs> Freedom. <laughs> and we're joined today by a special guest, Alejandra. Hola. Uh, and today's episode is another Antifa propaganda episode. Woohoo! We're we'll looking at three movies Starship Troopers, Pan's Labyrinth, and Thor Ragnarok. Tragically, none of these movies are propaganda for Antifa. Well, I mean. I mean, I mean yeah. that argument could be made for Pan's Labyrinth, because, I mean, yeah. it's clearly on the side. Against Franco, like that's. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think these are different versions of pro- uh, fascist propaganda. Yeah, uh, they. Or anti propaganda, I should say. Yeah, their their successes and failures are in in different ways. Uh, I think I think the least failure is in Pan's Labyrinth, but I, uh, I chose yeah. these three because I wanted to get into a little bit more genre territory because that's where most of the propaganda tends to take place. Yeah, yeah. Also well, because... it's also the it's it's the easiest to get away with. Yeah, because yeah. a lot of people um, don't pay attention. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you can tell by how people took Starship Troopers that that's actually more oh, true than Verhoeven wanted. God. Even more, I talked to people to Thor about Thor when it first came out, and they were like, yeah. "What are you talking about?" Uh, it's pretty blatant like yeah but Owen said it so that he's the bad guy so that meant it wasn't true right Uh, what (laughs) but we'll get to that (laughs) it's funny you mentioned it because I I did look up like the name of every movie uh, with fascism next to it just to see if I could get like a lot of background and the only one that did not come up was Thor Ragnarok really yeah Uh, I believe that because uh, no, I only I remember seeing one article, and he, um, Taika was like, "I made this movie about nationalism and yeah. immigration, which is while not actually fascism, is I would say an offshoot of fascism." Yeah, mm-hmm. and at the very least, like every part of of the way, like the choices that he clearly made in that movie were about expressing and attacking like white supremacy and authoritarianism like and, and like nationalist authoritarian like that's that's fascism is just nationalist authoritarianism surprise also, fascist erasure <laughs> like yeah i'm so sorry to bring this up now I'll, I'll try to put a pin in it later there is literally a scene where the monstrous murderous creature says history has been rewritten to be forgotten in the statues and rips down a wall to reveal the truth like wow that's timely Uh. (laughs) admit to what you are (laughs) okay Uh, so real quick um, yes i know alejandra hadn't seen starship troopers (gasps) <gasps> oh but wait it turns out i had oh, oh you uh, forgot it i was like yes i was i was like 15 minutes into the movie when i was like wait a minute <laughs> i remember uh, this fever dream it's a hard movie yeah. not to have seen if you've been near a television in like the 90s and early 2000s yeah exactly <laughs> they used to they used to, to play it on on like uh, open television mm. but the name of it in spanish is invasion Oh, oh. <laughs> that's interesting. To the yeah. Point. yeah. Yes. <laughs> Somebody watched the movie and said, "Nah." Poor <laughs> <laughs> spiders. Hmm. I'm. 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 I, I wonder what the. Uh, do you know what what the novel's translated title was? I have no idea. Ah, I mean, I, 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 you don't. You don't have to look it up. I was just curious if if that was a a, a known quantity. Okay, so I'm guessing then we all three had seen these movies before. Yes, I love Starship Troopers. It used to play endlessly on repeat on like TNT with commercial breaks. It was like three and a half hours long, and I just have such vivid memories of my parents leaving me for like a week, I think, when I was eighteen, <laughs> and just doing nothing but making endless piles of cookies and watching fat like. <laughs> watching fascism yeah <laughs> being like this is the best christmas i've ever had like, this is great i mean i i will watch anything that has guillermo del toro or paul verhoven or taika Waititi. man we got a good trifecta of directors really today oh, yeah. 
I don't know if Thad was with uh, the the group at this time, but back when we hung out with Alan Dare and the gang, mm. um, we were sitting around uh, Joel's apartment, and we're like, man, we'd love to see Starship Troopers. And sure enough, TBS or TNT had it on. Yeah, just turn on it. But then we were like, yeah, you know what we fucking hate? Commercials. Let's go in it. And so this went on an all-night extravaganza. We went from Blockbuster to Blockbuster. Trying to fucking find. This is back in the days before streaming and Netflix. Uh... (laughs) And we found it. And so we were up to like 4 in the morning. Yeah, that sounds 100... No, I was not there for that, but I was. that is 100% believable. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so starting off with Starship Troopers, Paul Verhoeven, who is a wonderful director and not uh, unknown to this type of film, 1997, because mm. he also did Robocop. <laughs> and also Showgirls, masterpiece. Um, <laughs> and also, after this, Hollow Man, which is a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Look, streaks happen and they begin in the end. Yeah, you, you, you break a streak, it happens. We know. it's ba- We understand. We're baseball fans. Um. <laughs> oh, baseball. <laughs> you could watch all of Kevin Burns, and by the time you're done, uh, it'll be 2021. Yeah. <laughs> and the die will have been cast for the future. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, Kara, you want to sum up Starship Troopers for us? Yes, I'm going to try to be very brief. Um, and stick so- to the movie, Kara. Wow. <laughs> What's very important is the movie and the book have nigh identical <laughs> plot lines, but completely different perspectives on what's happening. Yeah. All right. So I need to. This is something that I need to to emphasize. This movie, um, the the four main characters that we meet are all Brazilian, and they all have name like um, Johnny Rico, Carmen. Uh, wow. Carmen Ibanez, oh, I'm just massacring this because I hate last names and I forgot to look them up until now. Uh, Isabel, Dizzy Flores, and Carl Jenkins, which... But, so, like, these these actors, these actors, so this takes place in Buenos Aires. These actors are all super white. <laughs> there are occasionally in the background or minor characters, non-white characters, but I can't emphasize enough that this taking place in Brazil you almost exclusively see white people. I don't know how deliberate that was, but it is eerie when you like reflect on it for half a minute. Anyway, so there are four essentially main characters. John, I mean, to be fair, they are well-off Brazilians. So. They are well-off Brazilians. This is are, isn't, it, true. isn't it... Oh, no. Isn't it Argentina? Did Argentina? I say Brazil? Yeah. I d- yeah. Oh, you did. Oh, okay. Sh- well-off Argentinian. Aw, and, and now I've crossed the book. <laughs> <laughs> This is Argentina. I've embarrassed myself already. Buenos Aires. I love... How did I... F- okay. We're going <laughs> to fix that from here. It's still fucking weird. Anyway, so there are four main characters. Johnny, Carmen, Carl, and Dizzy. Johnny is a good old boy, um, future space football player. Carmen is a brilliant mathematician that wants to become an Air Force pilot. Carl is a borderline sociopath who wants to go into some sort of dark secret service. And Dizzy is a girl. She is absolutely in love with Johnny and hates that he's he's so in love with Carmen. She's also like the quarterback of the, the yeah, football team. She, she, yeah. Uh, she's also incredibly sportsy outgoing. She's actually I'm sorry, a much the space better, football team. My mistake. Yeah, she's actually a much better like her and Johnny have very similar like actions and personalities and outlooks on life. So they actually all end up signing up for the service because service guarantees citizenship. You can't vote and you're not a citizen. You can't go into politics until you serve in the military. So Carmen wants to go into the military because she wants to be a pilot. Carl goes because he wants an excuse to torture things. Johnny goes because he loves Carmen and hopes that they'll be put together. And Dizzy shows up later and says that she enlisted for her own reasons, but kind of suggests maybe also Johnny, but also she wants to beat stuff up. They're all like very young. They're very cheerful and handsome and outgoing and like really like cool people. Uh, Johnny goes through basic training. It mainly focuses on Johnny. Johnny goes through basic training. There's a terrible incident where another cadet is killed and he considers quitting. And right when he considers quitting, another plot thread comes in. There is an alien race called the Bugs that humanity is at war with. Um, the Bugs don't have spaceships. They are just um, giant bug entities. There's no spaceships. There's no visible technology. Um, it suggests that they may have kind of a hive mind or like a psychic connection the way the ants or bees do. I mean, I don't know if bees are psychic. 
Uh, I'm not allowed to tell you. Okay. And Buenos Aires is destroyed by the bugs. Johnny tears up his um, dropout forms and enlists to go to war. They go to war and continually humans lose over and over and over again. Carmen does become a flight pilot. She's quite excellent at it. Dizzy's an amazing fighter. And finally, Carl shows up much later after a disastrous, disastrous fight on, on a planet. Clendathu? Uh, Clendathu. Um, so essentially, <laughs> humans continually this underestimate. Is what I think Bruce Campbell says in Army of Darkness. If I'm not no, yeah. it's Klaatu Barada Nick. Ah, okay. That's a reference so, to this, uh, uh, to, no, not this island Earth, to the day the Earth stood still. Sorry. Gotcha. There's this thread that goes through the film that has, um, it has the great, like, would you like to know more? To, would you oh, like yeah. to know more? Like, yeah. news bits that are all clearly, like, sharply angled propaganda. And it's very clear that humans are consistently underestimating the bugs because they don't have what we view as technology because we can't communicate with them because we don't know what they are. And uh, finally, Carl shows up to be like the bugs. I'm sorry. Are... How does how does Carl show up, Kara? Oh, he shows up wearing like a Nazi uniform. <laughs> <laughs> so things go pretty terribly wrong. And Johnny's unit is actually lured into what they think is a simple rescue mission, but is actually a trap. And he watches his superior officer, who he loves very dearly, die. Um, his friend Dizzy, he and Dizzy have finally like consummated their relationship, run a relationship together. Dizzy dies. And when he buries her, uh, Carmen is incidentally the one that rescues his team from this planet massacre. And then Carl shows up again and says, the bugs have a brain bug, a genius one, and we need to find it. And because when we find their brain, we can destroy them. So we're going to send you all on another mission to capture the brain bug. When they do that, there, there's a great scene where Carmen's um, ship crashes with another pilot. And the bugs drag her before the brain bug. And we find out what the brain bug does is that it's a, this giant, monstrous, ugly thing. And it has like a mouth. And it eats the other pilot's brain in order for them to understand what the humans are doing. And there's this very terrifying scene where she's like on her knees. Carmen's on her knees before all these giant bugs in this terrifying scenario. And then she manages to like basically escape at the last second. And then uh, what ends up happening is at the very end, Carl shows up again. They've managed a secret attack, counterattack. They rescue Johnny. Carmen is safe. Carl shows up and they drag the brain bug out of its um, hideout and say and carl who is vaguely psychic touches it and says they can feel fear and all the humans cheer because now they know that they can terrorize this other species and And that's our happy ending (laughs) it's not just happy ending there's a note where we see it's very odd because the brain bug is disgusting and terrifying and then the scene at the end where it's like captured it's huge it's like 10 feet tall or something but it's like a, a sad eyes it's like a grub and it has these big liquid eyes and like little like hands, and you can see it's a f- like holding its hands close and clearly afraid. And you see them like it's censored when they start to shove a proboscis into its face, like indicating they're like sexually torturing this bug for amusement. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. The the coda scenes are are real. Fuck up, God. Uh, and so it's it's as a it's a piece of propaganda. It's super interesting because all of our main characters, um, with the exception of Carl, who's kind of weird and sadistic, but Dizzy, Johnny, his superior officer, Reljack, um, his trainer, Zim, Carmen, Carmen's stupid friend I don't like, whose name I'm not going to remember. <laughs> um, they're all good people, and they have zero critical thought to what they're doing or why. None. There's no self-reflectiveness in any of these people. And so it's very it's it's one of those movies that you can watch it and be like, yeah, go humans, F the bugs. And then like there's a fridge moment later where you're like, wait, what did I just see? Yeah. That's a good perspective on what kind of movie it was. See, this time, Thad, I'm not going to steal your punchline. Oh, thank you. Because uh, like I, it had been a long time since I had watched Starship Troopers. Uh, like a lot of us, I feel it's a movie that was around a lot, and then we uh, once cable stopped being a thing that uh, any anyone paid attention to, it stopped being as present. Right. But watching it this time, I got a very real sense that like this movie is diegetically a propaganda movie made in this universe. Which is why, like, all the square-jawed, like, you know, flawless English white people are uh, also, like, from Argentina and, like, from Buenos Aires. And uh, not to say that people in 
Buenos Aires can't speak English well. I'm sure plenty can, but it's like it, they're very coated white. They're very they're coated as American white, <laughs> yes. and it's it's very clear. And but like they still have the names of these people. So the way that I read it this time was this is a a propaganda dramatization of events that did happen to people who were from Buenos Aires in this world but were cast in this propaganda movie as white people because that's who you cast to make people look good. And uh, that's that's sort of how I read it, and it, it was uh, this time, and it was, uh, I don't know, it just seemed very natural to see it that way now. Uh, I don't know, so that's that's sort of how I took it this time around. I, I mean, the first time I watched it, I, I don't think, I think I must have been like... 10-ish, you know? So, yeah, it sounds about right. <laughs> so I, I, I de- it definitely flew over my head, and I mm. definitely was like, yay, humans! Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yes. And then, and then I, the, the, when I started watching it this time, and I started recognizing the characters, and then uh, the, the moment it hit me was the, the, the first scene with the, with the, uh, with the teacher, <laughs> in which he's like, violence is the answer! And I was like, What? <laughs> <laughs> what is this movie? Um, but a, but a, a point about the, you know their whiteness. It's interesting. I I did like go on my phone briefly and say and see that there is uh, a Buenos Aires in in uh, Brazil, and they never do they never do clarify which city it is. Um, I'm so sure this is Brazilian in the book. I'm so sure it's Brazil. It must be Brazil then, because they never do say that. That, because Buenos Aires is like the, the capital of Argentina, right? Yeah, yeah. But what would be interesting is if if it were Argentina, because you know it's surely Brazil if the book is from Brazil. Mm. Uh, but if it were Argentina, Argentina is known in Latin America as the Europe of Latin America. Yeah, it's oh. white. It's very white. Yeah. Ah, that's interesting. Yes, but I mean, it's it. You know, it must be Brazil because there is a, a Buenos Aires in. In Brazil, because I also feel like when I when I saw the the strike map on like when they show the the graphic of like oh this asteroid yeah, hit, I thought it, it was it, further north than Argentina, but yeah, I, it, is, it is Brazil. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I just got I just got like lulled by the by the capital. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I was like, too wait, that's not right. There are, there are too many places with the same name. It's, it's oh yeah, it's fine. <laughs> um. Like the opening, I think it should be mentioned because it gets mentioned all the time. But it's really important for me anyway. The very op- the opening sequence of Starship Troopers is shot for shot, frame for frame, from L- Lean Riffenstahl's Triumph of the Will. Yeah. yeah, it is a remake of one of the most infamous propaganda films ever, and I, then I, I, it I... brings in the internet. And yes, mm. it's an old timey version of the internet, but it's a tl- yep. it's still it's very. Nice. It still drives home the point of, yeah, that's how the internet works. Do you want to know more? Nope, you can go over here then. Yeah. Or, uh, right nowadays, do you, have a, do you have a subscription? No? <laughs> Fuck you, you don't get the subscription. <laughs> or, or you could see it as, oh, did you leave autoplay on? Then we'll continue the fascist propaganda. <laughs> oh, my favorite is the autoplay. That's mysteriously somewhere on the page, but you don't know where it is because oh. there's a lot of moving pictures. And oh, nope, it's not. It's not propaganda. It's erectile dysfunction. Uh advertisements are awful. Uh, I, this is, but the the Lenny Riefenstahl thing I think is interesting because it's one of those things where sometimes I, I feel bad because of how much smarter Paul Verhoeven thought his audience was going to be. Oh yeah. 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 Because he's like, you know what? I'll do Riffenstahl. Clearly, that will show you <laughs> that what I'm trying to do is satire. And apparently, well, uh, I like, was like, nope. And like, while there, like, there is too much attention paid to fucking Nazi films in film studies, uh, or maybe not too much, but the wrong kind of attention. Let's say because right. it is important to study propaganda so that you know how to fucking not. But. Uh, <laughs> But like outside, like outside of that, not a lot of people are directly familiar. <laughs> so it's like it's such a, like it's such a strong reference. If only more people were like uh, self-aware about it, as opposed to just uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, it's... okay. So part of the charm of Starship Troopers, as Kara put it, is these are like the four most square-jawed, cookie-cutter <laughs> characters. That you can put into a movie like this. There's yeah. no backstory or depth to these people. And then no. Verhoeven, either on purpose 
or really lucked out. Got four actors who are decent, but who do the job well enough to sell whatever this is. Yeah. Like, Casper Van Dien is not a great thespian. Denise Richards, <laughs> as much as I love wild things, and <laughs> it's not, not, like, selling her as a mathematician is hard. <laughs> and she does it really well, because the whole point is not the fact that nine times out of ten people in movies who are supposed to be smart are not. Yeah. And, uh, well, and I mean... Neil Patrick Harris is playing a real creep. Yeah. yeah. So the fir- or one of our first introductions to Carl's, here are some of the things we see Carl does to his friend, Johnny, who, by the way, is very handsome and could clearly beat the ever-loving snot out of Carl. Uh, Johnny fails a math test, so Carl projects his failing math grade on a giant screen in front of the audience. Carl then, psychi- uh, Johnny comes over to Carl's house, and Carl psychically contacts his ferret to go run up his mom's skirt. We like, didn't see him show up in a fascist uniform to tell them that he wants that, that he sacrificed a bunch of human lives to see if the bugs were smart enough to kill people. Like it's bananas. Yeah, like it's it, well because it's also like when this movie came out, uh, this was before like NPH became a thing, mm-hmm. and and so we mostly just knew him as like the smart TV doctor kid. And so, like, it's it's a really, sh- like, I don't know, it's a really sharp casting in its moment because he was meant to project, I, I feel like we're meant to presume a kind of harmlessness and then, like, see it on him immediately and then see these things, like, build to when he's wearing a, a full-on fucking uh, Nazi uniform. Okay, so, and then the, the fourth person, Dina Maya Dizzy, is probably... Mm. Mm. The best character in the movie? Yeah. But the most interesting actress. Yeah. Like, she like, has an energy, and I was like, I want more Dizzy. Then at the same time, every time Dizzy comes on, it becomes about Johnny, and I'm like, eh. Yeah, yeah. like, I, like she's she's the most compelling, like, a- uh, actress out of the, the four leads by a decent length. Right. But it's almost yeah. like, again, there's nothing to the characters. Yeah. And so yeah. It's, a, it's, like, almost, it's meta on top of meta on top of meta, and it's really easy to get lost. Mm. Because as I mean, uh, it, hmm? I mean, you, I, you you do get, and I remember especially when I was young, I got very distracted by like the romantic plot. Um, yeah, it's, it's, that is not in the book at all. Yeah, and I was like, go dizzy, you know, <laughs> down with Carmen when I was young, um, and now I'm like, oh, dizzy, come on, <laughs> girl, oh sweetie, have you are better than that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I fucking hope she didn't. Jo- I hope she joined that unit just to get better training because if she joined for that idiot, then oh come on, girl, yeah. you and you were above this. Carmen turns out to be like, oh, I kind of like Carmen. She's like, I want to do this, and Johnny's like, oh, okay, and she's like, I, I really don't know if I'm ready for what you want. Okay, all right, I'm breaking up with you. How could you? I this wasn't like out of the blue. Uh, yeah, yes, but oh. but yeah, I, I I guess it it is a distraction. You know it. I I can only imagine it's it's um you know on purpose that that there's this you know semi intense romantic plot in the middle of it that you know makes the rest of the film fly over your head yeah uh, completely well, I think that's a throwback to old Hollywood or how movies usually operate of you don't really actually... notice the subtext because you're so busy focusing on the text yeah. I was actually thinking about, like, this would also be an interesting movie to pair with, like, movies that were actually made, like, in America about, like, soldiers in World War II. Like, well, oh, the yeah, more like propaganda the, side. The Army films? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like, I think it would, it would be really interesting to do a side-by-side on that, but also probably really sad. <laughs> but uh, also, uh, after that opening, as Alejandro pointed out, the class... And which is basically, I guess, violence one hundred and one. That, uh, that is in the book. Would you like? Con- would you like to know more? <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> Moving on. We only have so much time. We can't. We'll, we'll do another episode where we talk but, about. But the like, yeah, but like, like I, I can't emphasize. Like it's it's threaded through several parts of the movie, but in this world. You can't vote unless you serve. You right. can't be a politician, and you can't vote while you are serving. It's only after you retire, and the world is run by retired soldiers. 
sectors. And they even talk about like, oh, yeah, when the military, the worldwide military coup took over. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think as a, as a, as a, as a like, final thought from me for, for Starship Troopers, I, when I finished this movie, I was like, was this a social experiment? <laughs> by the director <laughs> yeah, that well, the is dir- my question <laughs> the director and the writer because it also like it's the same director and writer as robocop so i'm gonna go with yes <laughs> <laughs> well also like i said like i did some research and like they were like do you want to do the movie and velvet was like well let's do a, uh, a fascist satire like why because all action movies are fascist yeah <laughs> oh <laughs> and i'm like some of the plot lines doesn't intersect the same way and the book is very much more episodic and it features a lot more about the training and stuff but i do want to let you know the bones like the deep bones of the structure are identical in the book and the movie and they end in pretty similar ways okay so like yeah so like people will like internet nerds will complain about like the some of them will complain about the ways the movie changed things but uh kara who is internet nerd does yeah Tara, who is a slavish nerd for sci-fi literature of this particular genre, uh, can school anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Now, speaking of meta upon meta, we move into Pan's Labyrinth, 2016, Guillermo del Toro. 2006. Sorry, 2006. I don't know why I said 2016. Well, because it's been 2016 for four years now, so we, we just sort of... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> time has become such a ball timey wimey horseshit. Uh. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> just, just meaningless. <laughs> yeah. All right, so, uh, uh, Kale, you want to do a brief uh, uh, summation yeah. of Pan's Labyrinth? Yeah, so uh, Pan's Labyrinth... Oh, I'm going to need to get the year right before I embarrass myself again. Hold 1944. On. Thank you. Pan's Labyrinth takes place in Spain in 1944, uh, I only care about the young girl in it, so there's only one name that you're going to get out of me. A uh, young girl, Ophelia. Uh, her mother has recently remarried, and her mother is heavily pregnant. Her mother has married a fascist. fascist. <laughs> yeah, like literally, and not like like I don't mean that as a pejorative. Her, her a literal Francoist captain. <laughs> yeah, her her stepfather is part of a fascist army that is doing work and completely crushing the anti-fascist and it suggests specifically red communist uh, rebellion in the sort of remote outpost so her heavily pregnant and somewhat ill mother and ophelia have been moved to this outpost to be with her stepfather while her mother gives birth because the father demands that he wants to see his child born in the middle of a war where they crush the enemy psychopathic there are two plot lines that begin to happen. Um, the first is that a woman uh, in the captain's household, a servant woman, is actually working. Mercedes. Mercedes is actually working with the um, is working with the uh, insurgents or the rebels, however you want to put them, and trying to get medical supplies. And so, as there is a scene where a person is tortured, there's a scene where the insurgents manage to break into the house and steal um, food and supplies. And that eventually coalesces into the doctor. Uh, the captain realizes that the doctor has been helping his wife has also been helping the insurgents. He shoots the doc, tortures an insurgent, shoots the doctor dead. And then uh, realizes that Mercedes has been all along betraying him and he attacks he goes to a torture and attack her, at which point she fights back with a small paring knife that she has, cuts the shit out of him, and flees. At the same time that all of this is happening, like over the course of the film, uh, young Ophelia is a bit of a dreamer. She fears and hates her stepfather. She's terrified for the safety of her heavily pregnant mother, whose pregnancy is not going well. And one night she follows maybe a bug that turns out to be a fairy into this nearby decrepit remains of a labyrinth where she meets a creature that identifies himself only as the fawn tells her that she is a mystical princess and she must complete three tasks before the moon is full in order to um 
in order to resume her rightful kingdom. These two stories start to weave out as she does a task. Uh, there's one task where she has to like um, can get an item from a toad underneath a tree at the same night as her, fa- her stepfather's having an extensive dinner party, and she comes home covered in filth and mud. Her mother grows increasingly desperate and frustrated as she realizes that her new husband is violent and does not love her, and that her daughter is lost in the dreamscape and that she is likely going to die in birth. And she di- And she's desperately trying to pull Ophelia back out of her fantasy but can't do much because of her own bad because she's drugged for most of the movie (laughs) yeah and she's drugged for most of the movie because the captain and at one point literally says if you have to tells the doctor before he shoots him later if you have to choose between the woman and the baby save the baby ophelia is alone and terrified one of her adventures goes terribly wrong where she is warned not there's a creature that she's warned you have to get something from the creature's lair but do not eat any food that you see there otherwise the creature will attack and that does happen and she's abandoned by the fawn she feels abandoned by her mother she doesn't know where to turn to and finally horrifyingly horrifying death her mother dies in childbirth the fawn offers ophelia another chance to come back it's at the same night that the rebels stage a massive attack ophelia steals her little brother and runs away drugs her stepfather who massively wounded by the wounds mercedes has inflicted follows her to the labyrinth Eventually, uh, in a great scene, Ophelia meets with the the fawn who tells her, all you have to do is prick. We need a drop of blood, of innocent blood, to open the gate to Netherworlds. Here's a sacred knife. Cut your brother. And she refuses. He says, give me the baby. She refuses. And the fawn angrily tells her that she can never come back and that he abandons her. And while she's speaking to the fawn, her stepfather, who is drugged and badly wounded, comes up behind her. And he sees her talking to air, to nothing. He takes the baby from Ophelia, shoots her in the stomach, goes to walk out where he finds the rebels and a furious Mercedes are waiting for him. They take the baby, tell him he'll, his son will never know of him, and shoot him dead. They go, they find Ophelia bleeding, Mercedes weeps over her body, and we see a vision of golden light as Ophelia appears in a beautiful fairy court where they tell her that the refusal to take an innocent life and sacrificing herself instead, it was the true key. She has passed the final test, and she'll be now be forever united with her father and her, the queen who looks like her deceased mother. And the movie ends. It is unclear in the film, and I think deliberately unclear, as to whether or not any of Ophelia's fantastic imaginings are real. There are hints that it's possible, but nobody else sees or interacts with the fairy creatures the way she does. So it's a possibility that Ophelia, either out of trauma or mental illness, has hallucinated this whole thing and merely dies in the dark, not realizing what's happening to her. Her mortal body is definitely dead. That's definitive. Ophelia dies at the end of this. Whether or not her soul is transported to this fairy world is uh, left up to the interpretation of the Watcher. Okay. <laughs> I love this movie. It's so sad. It's so <laughs> sad. And the, the fawn, initially, like, initially you're like, oh, okay, so there's a magical creature and he's going to teach you lessons. and so on. But like, the fawn is a little shady. And like, yeah. as the movie goes on, the fawn becomes terrifyingly shadier and like more and more menacing and like real fairy tale shit none of that disney stuff in these parts and there's there's a sort of a lesson of um what is obedience why do we do the things people tell us to do what is the value in that who can we trust in this world and that everyone has their own reasons for the things that they do Mm. yeah i think yeah sorry Sorry. also um uh, your parents um fuck you up (laughs) (laughs) that is the takeaway (laughs) the uh the fascist captain so he carries around this broken watch that he looks at like the the face of it's broken he looks at it constantly and then someone's like hey i heard that when your dad died he smashed his watch so he'd know what time so his son would know what time he died and the captain's like that is totally not true and then it's very clearly true okay well it's 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 made even more true because he says that's not true i don't have oh uh he didn't have a watch yeah no like he he makes up a weird lie to deny this like thing that he's obsessed with And, like, when the rebels take his son from him, he, like, pulls out this broken pocket watch, and he's very clearly like, ah, oh, I could smash it, and then my son would know what time I died. And then he has this weird, like, kind of cowardly moment. He's like, no, tell my son this. And they're like, we're not going to tell your son anything about you. You suck. And they, shoot him. 
best scene in the whole movie. Oh, it's yeah. so good. It's so good. <laughs> I just enjoy it so much every time I watch it. Yeah, because it's, it's like, I mean, that that's because what that guy's background is a great metaphor for fascism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it is this passing down of this idea of what is honorable to do, and it's tied up in symbolism and masculinity and violence, and it's just this, it, like he him like just that whole setup is so perfect because like no, we're not going to keep these fascist stories. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to love this child, and you're going to rot. Like that's what will happen. It's so good. God damn. Yes. I, I mean, in, in general, I think uh, analyzing uh, fascism in the in the context of, of obedience or rather obedience in the context of fascism mm. is is ex- extremely interesting because at the, at the end of the day, like you look at Starship Troopers again and it's like these people are not bad people, mm. but they're obeying orders. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and nobody thinks to question it. And, and Ophel- Ophelia in this movie her whole purpose is to is to you know to posit the the question. What if I question it? Yeah. Right? The it, comparing to Starship Troopers, I mentioned an incident where uh, another cadet dies. So what happens in that moment is Johnny, the other cadet, is having trouble with his helmet in a live fire exercise, and Johnny commands him to remove his helmet, and he does, and then he's accidentally shot in the head. And then later on, they tell Johnny, well, you know that you're not that you are never supposed to tell someone to remove their helmet during a live fire exercise. Why would you tell him to do something that, you know, he's not supposed to do? And so everything is in the context of uh, obedience. And later on, like when Johnny sees his friend Dizzy and Reljack, his superior officer that he deeply loves and admires. And then his friend Carl says, says, oh, yeah, we sent you in there knowing that it was a trap and knowing that you would die. Are you ready to take the next mission? And he says, yes. Wait, I, I have to butt in real quick because my favorite part of that scene where Johnny attempts to, like, where Johnny quits and comes back is, like, they're not supposed to let him back in either. Yeah. But they do because fascism is inherently bullshit. Like, it doesn't <laughs> believe in it. As long as you're willing to do its stuff, it doesn't believe in its own ethics. Right. Yeah. Like, fascism has no ethics. Much like yeah. the current fascist, it just does whatever the hell it wants. Yeah, and that's what's great about the captain is because he is that story. Like, it doesn't matter if the things... That story is what matters to him. Yeah, and that is all that there is to fascism. Anything else he does, like, he doesn't care about his wife. He doesn't care about the the any people, like, who work with him or for him. He doesn't care about the doctor who is taking care of his wife and guaranteeing the, the, the health of his now, like, born son. He only cares about, like, setting up the continuation of his fucking story. And it's such a great construction of that. He's so despicable. There's a scene, I'm so sorry, a scene where we see him beat a young, uh, his men bring him, like, oh, these people are in the woods shooting. Like, maybe they're rebels. And it's a a, kind of a dumb kid, like like a young man and his father. He's like, we're just hunting rabbits. That's all we have. We have, like, an you know, some pages that are clearly toilet paper and a in our bag but like we're innocent we haven't done anything wrong and he beats the kid like horribly on screen like on this kid's (laughs) face and then shoots his father and then reaches in the bag and there's just a rabbit there because they said they were hunting rabbits and it's very clear that they were telling the truth and he killed them anyway and he tells his man like make sure the next time you bring me somebody that they're actually doing something wrong because he doesn't there are no rules he doesn't care right I think it's interesting that both Comparatively to Thor, which I understand why Thor doesn't do this, but mm. of the three movies, these two show violence in the Ooh. most graphic yes. and hard-to-watch ways. Because it's Actually, shiny and overproduced as Starship Troopers is, when violence happens, it's immediate, ugly, and may- almost makes you look away. And yeah. it's comic, like in the yeah. horrifying way that real violence is comic. Like it's not people like gracefully falling down as people like screaming and crying and pooping. It's, it's, and yeah. Like, like in, in terms of in Starship Troopers, violence is shown to be like comedically pathetic and right. sad in its, in its ridiculousness. Whereas like, and Karen, and I were just talking about this before, uh, before we got on the call, but like the, you could see like Guillermo del Toro's horror yeah. roots 
so well on display in knowing how to deploy violence in a way that is not attractive. Right. Actually, I, I very recently saw an interview with Guillermo del Toro where he talks about the way he portrays violence, and mm. he does it in every single movie. Like, yeah. there's a there's yeah. a horrifying scene in like The Shape of Water uh, with the knee and the guy, and he's like, you know, what I think about violence is that you know we're so used to the shot to you know people getting shot or mm. you know hit in the in the face or in the stomach that we don't even register it as violence anymore. Mm. But if someone gets poked in the eye. Or like has their half their mouth torn off, or or like has their kneecap like crushed on screen. Uh, that you feel you it yeah. makes you flinch. It reads really reads as violence, and you're like, no, I yeah, don't want to. Yeah, because yeah. like you, because like I remember, I don't remember the title of it, but on on uh, one of the Criterion things for. Uh, now I'm blanking on what his first uh, movie was, but I, I saw I saw a copy of one of his early. Chronos, right? Chronos, yeah. Uh, yeah. There was a copy of one of his early short films on there, and it had this like almost like Dar- Dario Argento kind of uh, bizarre violence to it, like in in his early short. And so it, it's it it's interesting to see how he's he's sort of like taken that very visceral like stuff that makes me think a lot of like Italian horror, that sort of mm-hmm. Argento tradition, but like carved away the dreaminess of it and left just the like visceral ugliness of violence and it's right. it's very striking well it's contrasted yeah. with the beauty of everything else yeah yeah um yeah. what's interesting for me about pan's labyrinth is a lot of people um again i'm going to reference the next movie when we mm. talk about the mcu or superhero movies like it's just escapism there's no need to get political <laughs> what del toro is saying the fact that you're trying to escape into a world without the captain is a political statement yeah. yeah, what that world is and what you conjure up is a, a statement of which you want to escape to. That is a political statement. And yeah. in the end, she's choosing a world without the captain. Yeah, and eventually she wants to fight with the rebels. But again, that's a world without the captain. Yeah, she's choosing a world without fascism. Yeah, like what you don't want is a political statement. <laughs> Escapism <laughs> isn't isn't a non-political statement. It is a, yeah. a very deep political statement. <laughs> how you tell that story, and part of what Pan's Labyrinth is doing is going, look, you have to understand fairy tales. Yeah. Like he's telling you, you can't be fascism. Yeah. yeah, there's there's a scene in the movie, and I think like in terms of like resistance is there's a scene where her mom is kind of unconscious and she lays in her mom's pregnant belly and says, my little brother, um, please don't hurt mother. When you come out, uh, I promise that you'll love her and I'll take care of you forever. Just please don't hurt her. And her mother dies. Like her mother hemorrhages to death. It's, it's clearly an ugly death. And then later on when the fawn is like, give me your brother. She says, no, my brother, like really first is not just the baby, but my brother. And so there's this moment where like, she begs someone not to hurt someone else, but like doesn't she doesn't have any resentment of the baby. She's not angry about this violence mm, that was done yeah. to her mother's body. She doesn't blame the child. She blames the captain. Right. And I think that there's a lesson to that too of like who is really responsible for this violence because um do you blame the rebels for bringing this violence or do you blame the captain for it? Well, yeah. it's also interesting. We say she escapes the captain, but mm. in the most infamous scene of the movie with the pale man with the uh, mm. hands for eyes, yeah. he's essentially a nightmarish version of the captain. Yeah. yeah, He's sitting at the same table the captain says that when he denies the watch exists. He's yeah, sitting at the head of the table. Yeah, how Not eating, but not... Go ahead. Like, not eating, but not letting anyone else eat exactly. yeah. either. How fascism controls stories by no, that's not what happened. This is what happened. Well, all, like God, the the, yeah, the metaphors in this movie are, are just <laughs> wild. Because like that that table and that scene. Because again, like yeah, if if we see the the pale man as the captain, like and and as has been as Kara mentioned in the synopsis, like the captain controls the food and medicine supply, right. and so like. The, like you know, Ophelia is told not to take the food because if you take if if you take the captain's food, you become what he consumes. Like right. that, like it's God, it's so good. When I yeah. love that, it. But like that's what the um, the thorn is trying to tell her. But at the same time, she eats because she's hungry, 
and the yeah. food looks so good. Because she and, was sent to bed without dinner. Like, that's and, and it's set up in a very... understand, and sort of what they're told, it's like, if you're not careful, because that's what fascism would do, if you are hungry enough. Yeah. There's a, a scene earlier where the... Um fascists are doling out food and they're reading this clearly pre-prepared statement of like a fire in every home and bread that is what we promise you we promise you fire and bread the rebels do not do this and so it's like here's a table filled with food but when you eat of it they come for you like like there's no right. safety in it yeah, yeah. um so that's fans level <laughs> <laughs> also can i just say like i i uh Every time I watch it, like I, because I'm an idiot, I always forget what the actual title of this movie is because, uh, you know, it's, it's Pan's Labyrinth to me because that's what I heard it called over and over before I saw it. But since we're watching in subtitles, like it's, it has the actual title, which is like, I don't know why they didn't just directly translate it. It's such a better title, The Labyrinth of the Fawn or, or, or even just The Fawn's Labyrinth. Come on. Well, also, I think it's interesting (laughs) to put out, like, this is a rarity in which this is a movie that was released in Hollywood, but was entirely yeah. made in Mexico. Yeah, it was, and it's made. It's I think it's made in Spain. It's actually an interesting thing because okay. while researching more about it, I Guillermo mm. del Toro was basically banished from Mexico uh, very early in his career after Chronos. Mm. Uh, really? Yeah, wasn't wasn't his father like kidnapped and ransomed at one point? Yeah, if I remember, was, yeah. But that, well, that was at the point where he was oh, already like, made, like made, he had made bank at that. Yeah, point. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, after his first film, Gronos, which is made in Mexico, uh, and it's excellent. Sort of, Watch it. Yes, I, I have. It's great. No, no, I, I'm sorry. I was talking to the audience, not you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, it's just it's just great. He's just great overall, honestly. Um, but. The, the 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 institute of, of cinema like kind of didn't like it and it was like eh, we're not going to give you funding for anything else and he couldn't get funding here and he actually the first iteration of pan's labyrinth was going to happen in the mexican revolution oh but he really yes he couldn't get oh. funding he couldn't get funding in mexico so he go he went to spain hmm. that's okay. interesting i didn't know that part that's cool yeah well, sad but <laughs> Well, it's also one of the things I was reading up on, and most of Hollywood, like for Hollywood, for us in America, it's hard for us to conceive of a time before capitalism. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this is one of those rare movies that goes, there's a time before capitalism. <laughs> it's also really sad if you know that, that Franco Spain, like, went on, like, into the 70s. Oh, right. yeah. yeah like, I don't, I didn't want... Happy ending. <laughs> Yeah, like, I didn't want to admit this out loud, but I went and looked it up, and they're like, yeah, and like, I was reading some other things, like, yeah, and you know, Franco Spain in the 70s, and I was like, what? Yeah, uh, yeah. and it's it's like, this this movie occupies such a, a tragic intersection of history, because it, like, the, the Spanish Civil War had these, like, very hopeful, like, constructive play, like, I, I you know, I'm a sucker for uh, Orwell's uh, homage to Catalonia, and like that, the story of like these different leftist groups of like anarchists and communists and whatever trying to come together and build something, and then in like inevitably both squabble, squabbling among themselves and being crushed by external forces, and it's just like so. I don't know. It's it's just such a oh, it's so tragic. All right, so we got to move on to Thor Ragnarok because we only got like eleven more minutes here. Oh, that's okay. fair. <laughs> uh, so so, so, really some, so some Thor play. stuff happens, so just and the basic uh, <laughs> okay. Very quickly, Thor and Loki go on an adventure to find their father. He actually mystically dies. Their sister sucks. They end up crash landing on a planet that they have to work together, kind of, to get off of. And their awful evil sister is going to destroy the universe unless they blow up Valhalla, so they do. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the sister Hela is essentially emblematic of the horrible colonialist uh, history of of uh, uh, Asgard, rolled up into a person and hidden away. And because they never dealt with it, she uh, shows back up to wreck shit. And she draws her power from Asgard itself, hmm. but is also uh, weirdly hurt and outraged when she finds out that they have forgotten who she is and what her accomplishments were. Because Kate Blanchett uh, is just uh, can sell anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm. So, unlike most Marvel movies, this one seems to be more aware, outside of maybe Black Panther, more mm. aware of the world in which it, it's being released into. Also, uh, as as a, a the YouTuber Sean pointed out, Black Panther and Thor Ragnarok have essentially the same narrative trajectory. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> like the 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 failures of the the royal family's past coming back to destroy the the peaceful stable future right. because it was never actually dealt with it was only hidden and then uh, yeah all that yeah colonialism yeah. if you bury it can never fully heal it's right. yeah um but i mean i think i think we have like two two sort of examples in in um in the in the movie in you know Hela and what she reveals about about Odin yeah. but there's also like the the master yeah the grandmaster uh, the grandmaster in in uh, the the trash can that they land on cuz I mm. can't remember the name on it the car <laughs> uh the car um we, but they both like embody something of you know the the mm. The, the blatantness of the Grandmaster is like, oh, okay. you know, I, I yeah. hide it flimsily, right? Yeah. While Odin, like, literally put walls on top of it to hide it and deny yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? The slaves with jobs. Right. Yeah, no, the, prison, the prisoners with jobs. The, the Grandmaster is very much just like on the thin layer of veneer. Not even yeah. like just a veneer. Yeah, he's, uh, he like has... Language he... and... Omission, whereas Odin is just straight up denies and ignores. Mm. Um, it's there's there's a great scene where uh, Loki and Thor show up and they're like, "Hey, Dad, what's up?" And he just tell like it's it's such a great scene in the movie because he's sitting there and it's Anthony Hopkins staring in the distance. He's like, "Here's the plot of the movie," and he just straight <laughs> up tells them like, "Your sister is a psycho. I don't know if you can defeat her. I'm dying now." And, and then I mean, just like. And I mean like, the way the way to win in the end is to facilitate the destruction of the monuments that uh, colonialists domination built for itself. Like well, that's... Also, it's, it's a weird thing of which you get a sense that Olden realizes what he's done. Yeah, but he he also is a creature of that world and doesn't know how. Like he never took the time to learn how to deal right. with that and how to make amends. He only. Yeah, yeah. He only tied a full HP without actually acknowledging what was the cost of centuries. Mm. Yeah. And um, it's like, now it's your problem, son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gotta and also, with your mom. And like, uh, not, a, not a, a, a narrative comment, but both Kara and I are very strongly of the opinion that this movie has Anthony Hopkins paying more attention to his acting than many, maybe any other film he's been in in the last decade. <laughs> Because, like, his performance when he's playing Loki, playing Odin, is hilarious and on point and wonderful. But the, like, the sad, dying Odin who's aware of what he has done and what he is leaving on his family's lap is yeah. also really impactful. Like, it's, it's like, maybe the most nuanced I've seen Anthony Hopkins in a, in a while. So There's a, sorry, there's a bit where, uh, I, I forget what immediately predates it but like thor is like oh my god all this is happening and loki's like yeah it sucks when they lie to you about who you are and where you're from doesn't it <laughs> loki loki who is literally a essentially a child of a dominated culture that was stolen right. oh my god he's like um, like an indian school kid yeah like kinda. literally he kind of is and it's never really directly addressed which i think is I don't know what how to feel about that. Um, so m most comic book movies have a lot of iconography because that's what they the built on. Yeah. And what's really interesting about with Thor Ragnarok is it's almost like Waititi goes out of his way not to have blatant iconography and actually spend mm. a lot of time destroying the old what we know of as Thor iconography. Destroys yeah. the hammer, destroys Asgard, the palace that we know of. Yeah. He goes out of his way to like you Thor is more than this. Mm. And we as a people are more than a flag. Or more than Yeah. More this. than it's not it's not about it's not about blood or soil. It's about right. like people being together. Like it's because uh, because also one of the one of the subtle things is like you see that that Asgardians are not just like white Norse people, which is nice. Like it's uh, well, because if this movie had Yeah. Oh god, Idris Elba is so fucking good. Um but also like one of my favorite sort of metatextual things that is done in this movie 
uh, is they do the thing where to set up how powerful Hela is, like, she kills Thor's, like, warrior's three buddies. Right. Uh, and the first two that she kills are the two sort of boring white guy ones who, the, who she kills very unceremoniously. And then Hogan, who I'm, I'm not sure, like, I, I, don't, I don't know where that actor is from, but he's, he's definitely, like, an East Asian-looking guy. And he's given his moment to, like, be the one who holds the line the longest. And it's this fascinating inversion of what is often done in Hollywood movies to secondary right. characters, especially secondary, like, to secondary characters of color. Like, in, in a normal Marvel movie, it would, probably would have been, like, the Ray Winstone, like, big, like, red-bearded guy who got to have that moment of triumph. But, like, it, I don't know. It's, it's a small thing, but it caught my attention because of how much it's a an inversion of the usual for an action movie. Right. Well, again, out of the three, the uh, violence in this one isn't as visceral and as oftentimes more just noise. Yeah, it's yeah. it's cartoony comic book violence. Right. Uh, the, but, you know, I think it's... I think I can forgive. <laughs> right. given, given that yeah. it's a family movie and everything. Well, because yeah. this is this um, is a movie in an ongoing series in the biggest meta property in the universe that like Taika decided I'm going to do some real like l- heavy lifting like well, with this. Also, <laughs> speaking to that, it's one of the rare movies in that continuum that is allowed to have lasting consequences. Yeah, which gives kind the movie way because part of what sort of undercuts Winter Soldier is the fact that nothing really changes. Like, yeah, a captain is a cap isn't really forced to address anything because it turns out ah oh, it was Nazis anyway. Cool. All right. And this will be the and this will be the first time in a while that like a director gets to follow up on that. Yeah, yeah. him and Kugler are the only two. Yeah, there is there is sorry in reference to both these. There's a great part in this where Valkyrie tells him like you are the problem, like the king, the throne, all of that. That's what's wrong with. Um, with Asgard. With Asgard. And Thor replies, don't you think I know that? That's why I left, but I can't leave people to die now. Right. And I think that there's there's something... It's a shame that that wasn't necessarily followed up on as much as I felt it should be. Just like, the problem is the institution. It's not like, oh, it's the problem is not the bad guy. The problem is the system will vomit forth bad guys over and over and yeah. over again. Right. And like the one good thing that uh, like, uh, and I mean, I I liked Endgame more than Jeremiah did, definitely. Uh, although it it's not memorable or worth re- rewatching, really. That's not um, hard to be. Yeah, but uh, but one of the great things that Endgame did is follow up on like where Valkyrie and the other Asgardians are I in a way that shows you. in a way that they they moved past. Uh, royalism, essentially, right. <laughs> and that's a that's a nice coda because like uh, Thor being on the throne at the end is not as happy an ending as I would have liked. <laughs> I feel like the government they set up is like basically the bureaucracy of so I married an axe model. So it's a quorum, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, just to, to I, I'm sort of thinking about the the, the recurring theme of the three um, that we've talked about on mm. the previous two is obedience, and I mm. I was just thinking that maybe Carl Urban's character could yeah yeah oh. yeah because he very um, much is a guy who obeys throughout most of the movie. Well, yeah, Carl... he's a. Go ahead, go ahead. No, just uh, Carl Urban's character. Um, he's one of the first people Hella meets, and he kneels to her and continually watches both like in admiration her power and in fear her like evil and destruction and cruelty towards others mm-hmm. and then in the very end he sort of decides he's not gonna be part of this anymore he's gonna flee with asgardian refugees and just like cover up that he works for her and the refugees are all about to die as her like undead soldiers and he jumps out and fights them off so that way others can live and escape and he dies, and no one notices. Loki doesn't notice, Thor doesn't notice, Valkyrie doesn't notice, Hulk doesn't notice, not even really Hela. Hela does notice, and she kills him, and then immediately looks away because she doesn't care. Yeah. His, his, well, I, his uh, moment was great, but no one remembers it. Can I also, like, the his trajectory, is, like, all of it is, is really solid in this way that seems very throwaway, because, like, he's introduced very comedically well, when we first meet him. Canada. 
Right. He's well, well. It's not. No. He was like he wasn't just like he was introduced as uh, as the replacement for uh, for Heimdall. And what he did with Heimdall's power is he just wanted cool stuff. Right. Like he's kind of a dumb guy who want who wanted to have cool stuff and feel important. He and and his own personal Craigslist. Yeah. And so he and so he is the first person to fall in line with the fascist uh, encroachment. And, right. and like it's. What is more twenty? Like this came out in twenty seventeen. So like, there's some fucking commentary to that. Like the the nerdy dude who wants to feel impressive and strong, but kind of isn't. Right. Like being the like it's so and, and like the hopefulness of someone being able to break out of that. Like I I like the positivity that Taika brings. Like for future potential for even characters who have done like terrible things. Yeah, and it's also for himself that he does it. Yeah, right? like because I I feel like the fact that no one notices is kind of a kind of a commentary on yeah. you don't have to kind of get recognition for doing a good thing. You the right thing stands it. for itself, right? Which is incredibly powerful in a universe of movies that says only certain people can be heroes. Yeah, and, and if it's not done with explosions in public, well, it's not. And also. Doing. And we haven't even talked to, and we haven't even talked about Korg, the right. the the dumb but very earnest revolutionary who, like, he's not a sharp guy, but he he is effective and he's friendly and he 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 goes along with people and people go along with him. Like, I love Korg so much. Want to join the revolution? Yeah. <laughs> I made it leaf, but I didn't make enough leaflets. <laughs> But the it's great like, thing about Korg, I think, is all is too that they, you know, he's like presented as a sort of naive, like sweet, uh, yeah. assuming, right? But then yeah. the moment that they give him the tools, <laughs> the revolution is here. <laughs> he gets it done immediately. Yeah, and he's not trying to be a leader. He's not trying to take anything over. He's just like getting people together and going, and it's so great. I love him. You look like men in need of a leader. Oh, thanks. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're running out. Well, of time. oh, oh, wait. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Kara reminded me of the last thing because, like, the the first thing that we see of Loki is he's built a big dumb statue of himself with his <laughs> arms spread, doing nothing, nothing useful. And the last entrance of Loki into the movie is him actually doing something it, like in the same position as the statue that he used to like pretend how great he was. Well, not and only it's, that, it's yeah. But the play the, the the play they're putting on is a useless story <laughs> about how the statue came about. Well, and it's and it's a and it it actually ruins like purposely. I would say like Loki's self-aggrandizement ruining what kind of he had constructed as a good moment for him and his brother, but he had to make a show out of it because that's what he always does. And that's what like this kind of authoritarianism does. Shout out to Matt Damon as a fake Loki. And, uh, well, fucking everyone. Cause, Sam uh, Neil is fake Odin. Yeah. Sam Neil is fake Odin. <laughs> it's so good. And the other Hemsworth. Yeah, the other Hemsworth is Thor. Like that. Into- oh, it's so good. That's just like, that's a wonderful example of a director having fun. Yeah. Taika knows how to have productive fun. And, right. uh, <laughs> so out of time. Um, out of the three, which one of you guys, like, which one do you prefer? Like, which one do Don't you make me the best job? Don't make me choose. Okay. The best job? If, if we're going to be explicitly watching these as movies... Oh, if, we... it, if it's doing the best job, then it's Pan's Labyrinth. Hands yeah. Up. If we're going to watch a movie that's, that's trying to move you to be like, you know what? Like, maybe when they're like, you know, kill the outsider, you could be like, nah, man. Starship <laughs> Trooper. Starship Troopers was uh, an, an excellent movie that was uh, better than its audience's understanding of it. So it, it didn't it didn't hit that mark. Uh, and Thor Ragnarok, I love in every direction, aesthetically, uh, narratively, like the cast and the director. But it's just, it's no Pan's Labyrinth. Like there's, <laughs> it, it doesn't land as hard with some of the uh, ideological things it's saying. Is of course immediately betrayed by other work in the series. Yeah. Alejandra. Sorry, Alejandra, you we immediately <laughs> talked over you. <laughs> oh no, don't worry. about it. I, I mean, I think Pan's Labyrinth in general for me, it's just, it's just one of my top five favorite movies of all time even though it just i hear the music when it starts and i start choking up yeah (laughs) Yeah. also can i say honorable mention for this series from me is i would put uh princess mononoke alongside Mm. these okay Uh, because i think it it also has strong like 
uh, I don't know. It has it has strong vibes of the same thing, like resisting the 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 inherent authority of of the uh, and like yeah, I don't know that that it's just also got much more of a, a nature theme aside the political theme. So people focus on the nature part though, as though it's apolitical. <laughs> um, for myself, in terms of like most successful, mm. I lo- Pan's Labyrinth is probably the best, but like I feel like you almost have to know something about fascism yeah i mean i don't know but i would i would push back against that though because i feel like the captain teaches you everything you need to know about fascism (laughs) yeah when he hits a child in the face (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i mean i guess i guess thor's the most accessible in a probably yeah yeah. Yeah. it's it's probably the least successful but most accessible yeah i think it's something we'll talk about in another episode like the differences Mm. between because probably out of all the ones we've looked at Mm-hmm. Uh, Hangman also dies, probably the best and also most successful because of his clear delineation of these images, and you don't like you don't have to know anything to get what it's talking about. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I, I feel super bad saying this, but I think that one of the barriers, and it's been pointed out with our best picture winner of this year, Pan's Labyrinth is in Spanish. Which bounds the ability of it to be accessible to a lot of Americans who either can't who or refuse. Won't. I'm going to go with refuse, considering how uh, common Spanish speaking is here, and yeah. I, I I accuse myself with that as well. Like as I, a man I, who worked in a video store and was told repeatedly, I only watch American movies. <laughs> oh, <sighs> so mad. <laughs> but like the 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 choice to. May uh, and this is so gross. The choice to make a movie about Spain in Spanish will prevent P- Americans from watching it. If they had made the movie in English, more Americans would watch it. But and I mean, it, a, it at least got critical success. It did get yeah. like a lot of people I know really liked it, but they liked it and they're like, "Yeah, but you know, it has subtitles." I'm like, and we're, also, we're, as, we're in as, high school, guys, we can read. Yeah, uh, come on. So we gotta wrap this up. Okay, sorry. Uh, sorry. So we all agree Pan Labyrinth out of these three is probably the most successful in terms of what it's mm. trying to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's all the time we have for now. Say goodbye, Alejandra. Goodbye. Say Thanks goodbye, for having Anna. me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> goodbye, it's, Alejandra. It's, yeah, it's, it's lovely having you. Bye, everyone. Say bye, Jeremiah. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>